Hello. Hello. All right, everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> okay, I feel better. That's good. <laughs> so it's been a while. Um, I'm going to uh, pick up, uh, continue on from where we uh, left off last week on the subject of worship, which uh, is not a difficult thing for me to talk about. But uh, before we get underway, let's, uh, let's pray. Um, God, we thank you for your presence. Um, we thank you as we step into your presence in worship that uh, you show us things. Uh, so God, this morning as I speak, Lord, would you uh, illuminate whatever is from you? God, would you um, blow up whatever is from me? <laughs> um, we open our hearts, God, to receive more of you, to be encouraged, to be corrected and adjusted and set free in all that you have for us. Our desire is to grow into a place where we can attempt to reflect your worth. Okay, so I've got my little security blanket here. If I keep running back to the music stand, you'll know why. Um, so we've been working through a series, and we're going to be working through a series in the coming weeks and months and maybe years on uh, kingdom living. So that's, that's what it means to live in the kingdom of God. So the goal here is that we arrive at the other end as Christians that reflect the kingdom of God more than we reflect the kingdom of the world. All right, so as I said, we're going to expand on worship in the context of the kingdom. Um, and and right, at, right at the outset, I want to put a bit of a disclaimer in here. Um, there's nothing about this message that is intended to be a takedown or criticism or anything like that. It's rather just continuing on the journey that we've been on as a church since we began, actually, um, of just continually adjusting to make sure that our focus is on Jesus, that our focus is in the right place the continual adjustment of our alignment to ensure that our eyes are firmly fixed there. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, so if anything hits a nerve today, um, let's commit today to uh, make an adjustment, not set up a defence, okay? Um, you know, cars come out of the factory um, with everything in perfect alignment, or they should, if you didn't buy a Kia or something like that. Um, oh dear. <laughs> Wrong brand to check, I don't know. Cherry? I don't, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, yeah, everything's in perfect alignment, but over time, things can drift, or you might smack a curb or something like that, and, uh, and, and the wheels get out of alignment, right? And they scrub down the tyres, and they can be quite, that can become quite dangerous. So you take it back, and you get things realigned again. That's, that's kind of what we're doing here. That was uh, my best attempt at an illustration about alignment. <laughs> there we go. Um, so Russ laid a foundation last week um, that sets up what I want to share this week really well. Uh, if you weren't here, uh, too bad, so sad. No, go back and listen to it. Um, but in a nutshell, we were reminded that the very presence of God is carried on the shoulders of the priests. Under the new covenant in which we live, we are all priests. Let's get that right from the outset. So therefore, the presence of God and the responsibility of carrying the presence of God is on all of our shoulders. So the responsibility of worship doesn't lie with this ragtag bunch up here, ragtag, this very professional slick bunch up here. Um, it lies with all of us, that's all of you and uh, everything that happens. So the more we make the choice to obey and engage in glorifying Jesus when we come together, the more we'll see his kingdom established in our midst. So as Russ reminded us uh, that if the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain him, then if he says to sing and lift our hands, 
then we better sing and lift our hands. If he says to get on our face, then we better get on our face. Anything that he tells us to do, we better respond because the heavens and the highest heavens can't contain him. So what does worship in the culture of the kingdom look like? So I'm going to break this down into two broad categories and they both start with the same letter, so it must be God. <laughs> so we've got, a, um, we've got a pattern for worship and we've got our priority in worship. All right, so let's start with the pattern. If you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100, while we're getting organised, you've heard these scriptures before. Um, God's kingdom is not one of chaos, but it's one of order. His word is full of direction, direction on how he wants us to do things. So when we follow God's pattern, his power is there. When we do what he wants us to do, he um, inhabits that and his, his power is made known. So Psalm 100 says this about worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all you lands, all you people. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. Yeah. All right, so it, it's, not, it's no formula or coincidence that church usually kind of rolls like this. We start with some songs more focused on praise and we might be a bit more hypey and daggy dancing about that. Um, and they're usually declaring the greatness of God and who Jesus is. That's what we did this morning. Um, now, following that, our perspective is starting to come into the right place where we can move into a more intimate and focused place, uh, focused place of Jesus-centred worship. And then often out of that, God speaks. There may be some ministry or manifestations of the Spirit, then the preaching of the Word, and then perhaps our response to that. It's a biblical pattern given to us because God knows us better than we know ourselves, and He knows what we need, and He knows how best to get His kingdom into us. So just going over that again, we enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise, or we get our eyes off ourselves and the kingdom of the world and the argument we had in the car on the way here, and we um, turn our hearts and be thankful for who Jesus is and turn our hearts towards him. So once we're in that place, we're ready to join the chorus of angels around the throne and enter deep into his presence in the purity of worship. That's our adoration focused on Jesus Christ. And then because we're in that place, we are finally tuned in and aware of what he is saying to us and through us to his body. So the manifestations of the Holy Spirit begin to flow. And there, from there, we, we are ready to receive the truth of the word preached and revealed by the Spirit because we're in his presence, fully surrendered to Jesus and we have ears to hear. Now notice that nothing about that order or pattern of things has anything to do with us convincing God to do anything in a certain way. It's all about God knowing how to lead us into what he is doing. It isn't about a formula that, that convinces the Holy Spirit to come out from under the table or out of the corner and to come and play like some kind of shy puppy. It's not about us creating an atmosphere for God to move. We often use phrases like, wow, the Holy Spirit really showed up today, or Jesus was really in church. We, we hope so. Um, 
Or we pray things like, Lord, we invite your presence to be here. Can I suggest that his presence is already here? The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and he hasn't gone anywhere. He is moving and manifesting himself now as he was then because he's the same God yesterday, today and tomorrow. So when we use phrases like, wow, God really showed up today, wasn't church awesome, the Holy Spirit was there, can I suggest that actually what really happened was that we changed. Our focus shifted from ourselves and onto the King. Our attention was captured by what the Holy Spirit wants to do and say. He didn't come into our presence, we moved into his. We didn't come into, he didn't come into our presence, we stepped into his. And I think to suggest that the presence of the God of the universe is controlled or limited in some way to the conditions and the atmosphere we create and how much reverb there is and whether the smoke machine's working or not is, is kind of offensive. I think it's bringing his majesty down to our level. No, no, no. We experience more of him in those moments because we have lifted our eyes to his level. Rather than bringing down into our midst, again, we've gotten our eyes off of ourselves and tried to elevate our worship to a level that reflects his majesty. Then he can move among us and through us. It's about um, us stepping into God's presence with a heart attitude that moves us and changes us into who he wants us to be. Right, so it's a very brief overview of the pattern. Um, we could talk about that for hours, but I, what I really want to get on to today is the other P, the priority bit. All right. <sighs> so the kingdom isn't a kingdom if it doesn't have a king. So pure worship is our priority here. The king's name is Jesus, and he is the focus of our worship. Uh, turn with me to Revelations chapter 2. Not plural, Revelation chapter 2, <laughs> verse 1. And Jesus says this through John. Um, to the angel of the church in Eph of Ephesus right, the angel being probably pastor or leader or whatever. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labour, your patience, and that you cannot bear with those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and laboured for my name's sake and have not become weary. Woohoo! Excellent. We're doing well. Verse 4 says this Nevertheless, I have this against you. Who wants to have Jesus say that he <laughs> has something against us? Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Jesus doesn't want a church that's lost its first love, that isn't focused on him. So much so, that's what that last phrase means, or I'll come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. He'll shut it down. 
He'll close the doors. So why are we always harping on and banging on about keeping our focus on Jesus? It's because we never want our church to end up like the Ephesian church here. We're doing great things. We're hitting all the KPIs that the world tells us we should. We look great. We're relevant. Our music is slick. Look at how amazing our production is. Look at the size of our screen. <laughs> or even doing all the, all the other sort of good kingdom stuff. We're faithful. We're patient. We're loving. We're serving. We're generous. We're giving. We're doing all the good kingdom things, but we've lost sight of the king. Now, because uh, Mr. Tozer can get away with a whole lot more than I, I've got a number of quotes from him that I found as preparing for this. First one is this. He said this. Without doubt, the emphasis in Christian teaching today should be on worship. There is little danger that we, will, that we shall become merely worshippers and neglect the practical implications of the gospel. No one can long worship God in spirit and in truth before the obligation to holy service becomes too strong to resist. Fellowship with God leads straight to obedience and good works. That is the divine order and it can never be reversed. A very dry mouth. Bloop. <laughs> yeah, sound effects. So Jesus is taking us uh, through a beautiful process of a church uh, locally and I think globally as well, um, and I'm harping on about it, of getting the priority and focus of our worship back on him. Everything follows that. That has to come first. Churches and worshippers everywhere are repenting and turning from the place we accidentally found ourselves where we focused on relevance where we felt the need to help the gospel along by packaging Jesus into a box that looks attractive and was palatable to the world. The kingdom of God comes and, re the kingdom of God comes and replaces the kingdom of the world. He is in the process of establishing his kingdom on the earth. So Jesus didn't just come to put a rubber stamp on our ideas and our worldly culture and to put a band-aid over our slip-ups and turn a blind eye when we insist that he needs our help. He came radically and turned everything on its head. It requires a totally new way of thinking. This is what true repentance is. It's not just being sorry. It's changing the way we think, doing a total 180. And he's still doing that today. So I often say in his light, darkness isn't just covered up. It doesn't exist anymore. So his kingdom drives out the kingdom of the world. It's a mortoza. He says this, the church that can't worship must be entertained. And men who can't lead a church to worship must provide the entertainment. Shock horror. This is even more blunt. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of thinking worshipping men. This she has not done deliberately. But little by little, a little and without her knowledge, and her very unawareness makes her situation all the more tragic. Ugh. And one more. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than it reflects Christ within us. Read that again. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than Christ within us.
You know, um, Generation Z is the most marketed to generation in our history. And uh, we spoke about this in the prayer meeting earlier. They've, they've seen it all before. And the church has been guilty of the oversell, um, we were saying earlier. Um, Jesus doesn't need our help. If he's moving, he will draw the multitudes. multitudes. Uh, we were saying earlier, if you've been watching The Chosen, the, the, the last episode um, has this kind of backstory where his disciples are running around pinning flyers on the... Um, on the trees and you know, marketing and all this kind of stuff. I just, somehow, I don't reckon that happened. <laughs> um, I don't think the uh, king of the universe needs a flyer. But anyway, Generation Z have seen it all before and we've spent squillions as a church at times on being relevant, appealing to the generation. And you know, I think um, even the kingdom of the world is starting to see through it. They smell a rat. Smell something non-genuine, but when um, when the presence of God is here, it's attractive. People flocked after Jesus because of who he was. He didn't need television, and he didn't need. <laughs> Look, I can tell. I digress. Dangerous, Very dangerous. We could be here all day. So, how do we worship, and how do we stay focused on Jesus? Well, the main thing that I would say is that I think we need to work on our revelation of who he is. We need a better image of the risen, reigning Jesus. He's no longer the baby in the manger. He's not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's not a pale man riding on a donkey, saying nice things and wafting about. He's not even the Jesus hanging on the cross, beaten and broken. He is the Jesus seated on the throne that we see in Revelation. So let's just read some of that from Revelation 1, verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then the writer of Revelation says this from verse 12, and you've heard this all before. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. It's an interesting exercise. Have you ever Google image searched Revelation 1.8? You should try it. It's kind of hilarious. Um, you get all these images of someone trying to put a picture to what this describes, and they all fall so horribly short that it's laughable. Um, I should have downloaded a few and put them up, just for entertainment's sake. But the point is that uh, we read this whole phrase and it says, his feet were like fine brass. 
For his head were white like wool, white as snow. Uh, His eyes were like a flame of fire. He's indescribable. He is magnificent. He is immeasurable, uncontainable, immensely powerful, unchallengeable, utterly and totally complete. He's more than all the adjectives we can muster and millions more that we can't. Words fall short. You know, I think often when we read through Revelation, we go, wow, that's weird, and it is. But it's just words fall short. It just can't describe him. And if we, we're talking about um, kingdom worship, uh, Revelation 4 gives us a picture of the throne room. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like, there it is again, was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne and he who sat there was like Jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne. This is weird, man. (laughs) In In appearance like an emerald, around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones... I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. It's weird. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne which, all the seven, which are the seven spirits of God. From verse six, before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back and the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. It's weird. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, he li- who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him. And they, throw their, they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. I was reading this and this uh, thought occurred to me. Has it, has it ever occurred to you that the creatures surrounding the throne are under no obligation to be there? They're under no obligation to declare his holiness. They didn't sign a position description or accept a job that says that their role is to declare holy, holy, holy for all eternity. No, they have eyes all around and whenever they look and wherever they look, they see some new facet of him which causes them to declare holy, holy, holy again and again and again. And when we focus on Jesus in worship, this is what we are joining in with. We get the tiniest, minute, itty-bitty glimpse of what is going on around Jesus' throne and we become a part of it. It's part of our preparation for eternity. Last hoser. 
I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. <laughs> Let me read that again. I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. So I was thinking through this and, and there's probably some of us in the room going, yeah, it's all well and good, but how do I, co- how do I connect with that? Um, how do I bridge the gap between uh, me and there? Or um, isn't it, there's a place for lament, right, and personal reflection, and the, and the Psalms are full of that. The Psalms are 70 or 80% lament and reflection. Uh, and you'd be absolutely right. There absolutely is a place for that. And I'm not talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Um, as I said at the beginning, this isn't a takedown. Uh, so I listened to a podcast this week from um, uh, Jeremy Riddle and Matt Redman. Um, it's very, very good. Um, And they said this, that Jesus is both helpful and holy. The alliteration is alive and well today. Jesus is both helpful and holy. But I think it's about where our priority lies. Which comes first? Which carries the most weight? We often talk here about prayer in the context that we were created for relationship and for rulership. And I think worship is similar. There's a difference between personal worship and when we all come together. You know, we've gotten very good at writing and singing songs about God in the context of what he does that benefits us. He's a healer, he's comforter, he's a provider, he's gracious, he's loving, and he is all of those things. He does lead us by still waters and into green pastures, and he does lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. But maybe it's time for some more songs that just focus on how incredible Jesus is. More of a picture of the throne room. Songs that more reflect what is going on and around his throne rather than what is going on around us. We need to sing more about what is going on around his throne than what is going on around us. Some songs where we don't actually write a mention. I'm coming to understand that uh, there is a time and a place for both expressions and I think broadly it uh, ties into when we worship personally and when we come together. So I think the trouble with the um, woe is me songs I call them <laughs> or, the, or the songs with lots of me, um, the songs of lament, is that in a corporate setting um, our connection or response to them is very subjective, right? It's, um, it, it'll depend on where we are all at as individuals. So a song of lament may connect and comfort and lift someone up, but if the person next to them is doing great, suddenly they're looking for problems <laughs> and trying to be depressed so that they can be elevated too. Oh, well, is there something, there's something wrong with me because there's nothing wrong with me. <laughs> that can't be right, no. The best thing for both of those people to do is to lift their eyes up to the hills to focus on Christ for that is where their help comes from and that's going to connect with every person in the room. Jesus is relevant to every situation, every individual who is, who is sitting here. Huh. I remember um, going to a gathering a while ago, a, a few of us went to um, um, a combined church thing, great opportunity to get together as the body of Christ and worship. And, um, but it was sort of clear that and again, it's not a takedown at all, not a criticism, but a couple of the people leading worship that night had had a, 
I can't say that word, a pretty terrible year. Um, and, you know, they, they led from that place. And um, I, as I sort of looked around the room, there was lots of songs of lament and help me God and all this kind of stuff. And all that, that sort of thing is great. But I remember looking around the room and I could see, you know, six, eight, ten people who were really engaged and really connected and, you know, kind of broken and God was clearly doing something. And then a few hundred others all just kind of going, what? Like, there's nothing, I'm good. <laughs> oh, um, I'll go and pray for this person. Um, and, you know, it's all good, um, but it's, it's about context and um, the, the when and the where. It was such a missed opportunity, I felt, at the time to, for the, body of, the wider body of Christ in the city to come together and just lift up the name of Jesus. Pray for our city to see things happen. And, and, and as we went through the night, there were a couple of moments of that. And you just feel that, like the, I hesitate to say, the energy in the room rise, but there was a sense of God's going, ah, oh, but just not quite, you know. So I think the healthiest place for this type of worship that, that, that is relational is in the relational context. It's in our times alone with Jesus. It's in our moments of crying out to him for help or our personal thanksgiving to him for what he's doing in our lives. It is really important and it does really matter. Um, look, honestly, it's been key in some of my dark moments and uh, recovery over the last little while. When we come together, sometimes this lament type expression is appropriate. Um, there have been times when, as a whole church family, we have experienced loss or difficulty. And that's okay, and that's the time for it. But the priority, though, when we're together, is to enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. To declare in one voice how awesome he is. This is relevant, as I said, to everyone in the room. When we step beyond the veil and join in around his throne, everything falls into perspective. Our successes and failures, our abundance or our lack, our sickness or our health, our joy, our sadness, our loneliness, it all falls into alignment and it pales into a temporary insignificance against the eternal majesty and holiness of Jesus seated on the throne. Every challenge falls away and every need is met beyond the veil. I feel like perhaps the access to this place is perhaps the most significant thing that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. It wasn't a um, little cotton curtain, right? It was this thick, heavy veil that hung in front of the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. And, and when Jesus cried out, it is finished, that thing tore from top to bottom and just and it's like the throne room was thrown open and they said come in come in and I wonder sometimes um, we live in this new covenant and what an incredible privilege that is but do we realize the significance of the privilege of that to go into that place to take us and all our stuff into that place and just declare the majesty and awesomeness of Jesus Christ I want to finish with this statement. Our response to Jesus in worship is directly related to our proximity to the throne. Our response to Jesus in worship is directly related to our proximity to the throne. Joe, if you'd come. 
So, um, sorry if that's a bit heavy. <laughs> it's not intended to be at all. But perhaps today, and we're going to come back to worship, um, perhaps we need to make an adjustment. Perhaps we need to reprioritise what we think is important when we come together. Or perhaps we're facing something incredibly difficult and, uh, and we've got our eyes on the difficulty more than we've got our eyes on the... Uh, there it is. Speaking of relevance and the Holy Spirit. No. <laughs> perhaps we've got our eyes on our difficulty or our lack rather than the provider. Perhaps what we need to do is just to lift up, glorify and honour Jesus Christ. So we're going to come back to worship now and um, just as we do that, um, I guess just do whatever you feel you need to do. Perhaps you've never raised your hands in worship before. Perhaps um, you've never got on your knees before him. It could be anything. Lord, I just pray in this moment, God, that... um, as we seek to glorify you and lift you up, that you would come and uh, make the adjustment in us that you need to make, if there is one that needs to be made. So we just give you, it's a strange phrase, but Lord, we give you permission. We give you permission to change us from the inside out. Yes, if you'd stand. I just want to uh, add one other thing, and that is that one of the ploys of the enemy is to distract us and get our eyes off of Jesus and onto other things. We live in a season where there's a lot happening in the world, and we can get our eyes fixed on those things. And they're a concern for us. But unfortunately, most of those things we can never change. We just get what our response needs to be to fix our eyes back on Jesus. Whether it's been individual hurt, or whether it's things happening around you, or whether it's things happening in the world, when we get our eyes off Jesus, we become shaken. So let me encourage you as we worship, whatever your situation is, just turn our focus back to him doesn't mean that everything's going to change doesn't mean everything's going to go away but you're going to change and then you'll be life rather than affected by the darkness of the world you'll be life